Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine today, we bring you a holiday special focusing today's program on Indigenous people. We begin with the story on murdered and missing Indigenous people and hear from artist Karina Emmerich and director of RISE, Demian Dene'eshe. They were at Art Omai in preparation for the awareness march around this issue. You're spraying a cardboard sign over here. Can you talk about what you're spraying? Yeah, um, so we're prepping for the March 6th um, march on Hudson for uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, trans two-spirit people, um, and all of our relatives. Um, so to just create awareness around this epidemic that's happening. I'm uh, Karina Emmerich. I'm here working with Damien for RISE, and we're both artists that um, just came up to help with this art build and to get people involved in this um, topic and to learn more about it. So, And where are these events taking place? I know there are multiple across the country, and you are working specifically where? Mm-hmm. So we're working specifically in Hudson. We're going to start down by the water and walk up Warren Street to City Hall, I believe. An art workshop here at Art Omai and then a march in the streets. How is this a effective way to get people's attention? Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting, like with a missing and murdered indigenous uh, people's awareness, we have a common theme of the color red. And it's always um, something that really creates awareness and it stands out when we're in the street. So people really pay attention and, and start to see that it's really important to a lot of our community members here, not only here, but nationwide as well. Um, and then it would just kind of create more awareness for more people to realize that this is going on because so often indigenous women and trans people and two-spirit people are not really amplified in the media. So it's something that we feel strongly we have to take to the streets to bring awareness to. So this is not a new issue. How long has there been an attention around the uh, murdered and missing indigenous women? Yeah, I mean, it, I'm glad you brought that up. It's definitely not a new issue. Um, this is an issue that's been going on for over 500 years. Um, but I think like the visual symbolism of, of the red dress and this movement um, has really kind of come to a stronger fruition since about 2010. Is there a parallel with other social movements for the reason that it's only getting attention in the last 10 plus years? I think that a lot of it has to do with um, kind of evening the playing field. I talk about this a lot as far as like social media goes. I think that people of color have a greater greater opportunity to amplify their voices um, when we're in charge of our own representation. Do you also feel like organizations, indigenous organizations and arts organizations are getting better funding as a way to amplify these voices? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, we've been really, really blessed that a lot of um, art organizations are starting to recognize indigenous artists as, um, as a, you know, real contemporary artists and not just something that's based in a historical context. Yeah, it's been a really beautiful day. We had so many people come out, a lot of kids too, which is great because um, it's really important for people to know at a young age, you know, um, how we can help support our communities. 
I know when I was in school, there was a very manifest destiny teaching in schools, and I feel like that's slowly changing, although, of course, we know that there's a lot of um, misunderstanding of, of what new teachings in school are or actual teachings. How do you feel like the school education is in representing a more accurate portrayal of the history of the U.S.? Um, I think it's incredibly inaccurate. I mean, it's been a while since I was in high school, but I believe we had like a couple paragraphs about indigenous people. Um, I think that a lot of teachers have taken it upon themselves to bring these issues to the kids. Um, but I also just think that education outside of like the industrial school complex is so important. And to come to places like Art Omaya and to be able to learn about these things and learn about what's actually happening to our people is something that's just so invaluable. And we're just like so grateful to be able to have these conversations. So what do you see when the kids are here? What have you noticed then in, in the kids who have participated in the event today? Yeah, I'm, missing and murdered indigenous people is a very heavy topic. And I'm sure a lot of people are, you know, like a little taken back by kids being involved in this. But I think that when we do it as a collaborative art project and everybody's making signs and it creates like this element of fun around it so that we're not only educating kids about what's going on, um, but we're also, you know, creating an action around it in itself. So, and I think, you know, any social justice movements, I started when I was really young and I'm so grateful for the knowledge that I gained when I was young. So it's really fun to be able to teach kids that now as a grown up. So on Sunday, we were facilitating a poster and banner making workshop at Art Omai. We had gathered there to conduct a workshop that was facilitated through Forge Project, which is a indigenous-run artist space that is also working out of upstate New York. And so we gathered with the intention of creating awareness, and some posters and banners for an upcoming march in honor and recognition of missing and murdered Indigenous peoples. Every May 5th, there is a day of awareness, mourning, and recognition of missing and murdered Indigenous women, trans, queer, and two-spirited peoples. My name is Demian Denet-Yache. I'm an artist writer, poet, curator, and uh, director of an indigenous uh, organization, collective uh, initiative known as RICE, which stands for Radical Indigenous Survivance and Empowerment. I currently reside in Portland, Oregon, but I am a member of the Diné tribe, which is more commonly referred to as the Navajo tribe in the Southwest. And my clans are Nastache, Tabaje, and Torricini. I like to think of Rise more as a indigenous-run space that whose primary focus is to amplify and create awareness around indigenous issues. You know, originally it had been more broad and was invested in like the education, preservation, and evolution of Indigenous art and culture. And I think those things are still foundational to what RISE is and what RISE does. But within the last few years, there's just been a need to show up and create space for Indigenous, queer, trans, non-binary, two-spirited, 
femme, female-bodied, matriarchal communities. And so Rice is kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily that we had to like completely shift the way that we do things, but I would say that a lot of those issues that pertain to the aforementioned communities have become prioritized. And so the ways that we go about engaging um, as a space has been through various types of engagement with various Indigenous artists. Um, Rise is something that is, you know, fluid, is constantly evolving. I myself am the primary director. Well, I, you know, kind of shy away from titles and whatnot. Um, I do think that is important to acknowledge. But that being said, you know, Rise is continually shifting and evolving um, through whatever and whoever artists and communities that we're bringing in. So I like to think that RISE is this continually shifting and evolving initiative that engages with various Indigenous artists and works in a transdisciplinary practice. If there's a way for us to engage and, you know, bring up topics and themes where people are being underserviced or where communities need to be celebrated, um, you know, Rise kind of steps in and amplifies this work. Um, and we do so mostly through visual art and culture. What actions would you like to see come out of the Day of Awareness? I just want more people to understand and celebrate Indigenous culture and the Indigenous peoples around them. I want people to go out there and be willing to, in a considerable and respectable way, reach out to Indigenous peoples and celebrate everything that, that, that we have done to contribute to the longevity, not only of this land, but of this country. Even as colonized peoples within this country, we contribute to so much on a continual basis. We've had a lot of really amazing brilliant ideas about how to live in unity with with the land around us you know sometimes by mistake sometimes through um, having to migrate because of various regions you know we have a lot of knowledge to share um, so I just want people to humanize us to honor us within our traditional lands and if that means giving it back if that means allowing us to make decisions and be present for these huge, massive moments that have devastating impacts on all of our lives, I think that's just the ethical thing to do. We can't keep living the way that we are. You know, I would hope that people um, all over the community in Hudson will come and join us for the march on the 6th um, and just come get involved, find out how you can get involved, um, find out some organizations that you can donate to. You know, we have like the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, um, the Coalition for Violence Against Native Women. Um, and yeah, just like so many different things that we can do. And um, and it's just important to find out what those things are. So I think on the 6th would be a great time to come out and support. May 5th is the National Day of Awareness for Murdered and Missing Indigenous People, also known as MMIP. Next, 
Heather Briegel, public historian, activist, and decolonial education consultant, was one of the organizers of that event in the first story. She recently spoke with me about her freelance work, including the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women. I am Heather Briegel. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, first-line descendant Stockbridge-Munsee, and I work as a public historian and consultant. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's been a while since we've had you on this program, and you're now based locally, and as you mentioned, you're working as a freelance historian and consultant. So I'd love to talk about what that work is for you and what are some of the talks that you have been invited to give? Yeah, yeah, I am local now. I'm I'm right here in the Hudson River Valley, which is kind of cool. Um, I think last time I spoke with you, I was still in the Midwest and and I am not there anymore. But um, yeah, so a lot of the work that I do um, revolves around uh, public history, uh, primarily Indigenous history, and bringing it to the the forefront of of everyone's mindfulness, um, making sure that they understand the the history of Indigenous peoples. You know, I've been invited to do talks on a number of topics, whether that's, you know, well, this is very timely, but it's November, Thanksgiving. So I've been invited to do talks on how do you decolonize Thanksgiving? You know, who were the original New Yorkers in sense of like who was living in the land? I have been invited to do talks on current and contemporary Indigenous issues, such as the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which I did at the, I've done a couple of times. um, And the last one I did regarding that was at the Brooklyn Law School. And then also on MMIW, which is an epidemic within Indian country that, you know, not a lot of people know about outside the communities. And so we want to bring awareness to that. I've talked on boarding schools and how to create places of inclusivity. So you name it, as long as it deals with Indigenous histories, I've probably talked about it. What are the talks that you enjoy giving most? Um, The talks that I enjoy giving the most deal with policy and a historical basis. So whether that is just an overview of federal Indian policy, which I do a talk on, or um, issues, contemporary issues today that deal with policy. That's what I absolutely love. When I was finished with my graduate school program, I had toyed around with the idea of actually going to law school um, because I just love policy so much. And the intricacies of federal Indian policy are interesting to delve into and, and try to understand because it's it's so different than any other type of law. Well, um, I did not go to law school, but um, my love of policy never wavered. And so I really enjoy talking about that, but from historical perspective. So how did a policy come to be? Or for example, of the Indian Child Welfare Act, how did ICWA become a policy that was needed to protect indigenous children? So then that leads into other topics that are in Indigenous history that combine my love of history and my love of policy all into one. So I kind of like talking about anything from a historical perspective because I feel like you have to have that historical basis in order to understand a topic. We could spend 
a couple segments just on talking about the policies that have to do with uh, reservations. What are some of the basic things to understand about the history of there is um, sovereignty over these lands, but it also creates these restrictions and lack of resources? What are some of the basic things we should know about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that people are completely surprised about when they hear me talk and when I talk about land or reservations or anything like that, people are primarily surprised to learn that indigenous tribes, native nations, however you want to classify them, don't actually own the reservation land that they're on. Um, it's the, the, the deed, the title to that land is held in trust by the federal government. And people are, their minds are just blown when they, when they hear that because you think, oh, you have reservation land. Oh, you must own it. No, we don't own it um, at all. And makes it very um, easy for the federal government at any time, you know, to take it away if they wanted to. But this, the, the idea that the deeds or titles of the land are held in trust by the federal government comes from a time period where the federal government didn't deem indigenous peoples, native peoples as competent enough to handle their own affairs. So if we weren't competent enough to quote, handle our own affairs, I'm assuming they mean, you know, Eurocentric kind of affairs, then we weren't competent enough to hold the deeds or titles to the land that we were on. So that's just, it's just a really interesting concept. So people are always like, that's just such a concept that people just, they're just mind blown by it. And they're like, so you don't own the land, so, but you live on it. So what happens when you, if you pass away, like, do you get to pass it to your children? No, it, it reverts back to the tribe. And I mean, sometimes it can, depending on tribal land policies, sometimes it can be, you know, you can pass it, pass it down to a next of kin, but nobody actually owns it. So I think out of anything, that's probably the thing that people, such a misconception about the most is that we own that land and we don't own it. Is there linkage between the murdered and missing Indigenous women and the investigations that are taking place where when it if it takes place on sovereign land, these lands that are reservations, that they aren't investigated properly? Yeah, yeah. So I think you're hinting at are there issues within jurisdiction? Thank you. Of yeah, <laughs> of who can investigate these crimes. And yeah, absolutely. Um well, I don't even know where to start on answering that question because, yes, there are um, issues within criminal jurisdiction when it comes to investigating crimes of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, whether they happen on tribal lands, non-tribal lands. Is your state a public law 280 state? Is it not a public law 280 state? Do Does the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, have jurisdiction over it? Does the FBI have jurisdiction over it? And what's the role of tribal police? So there is so much that goes into trying to figure out who can investigate a crime before a crime's even investigated. So once that's figured out, which can be quite difficult to figure out, um, there's you know, time goes by and leads, you know, crim leads in criminal investigations um, become smaller and uh, 
perpetrators can get away. Um, and there's also this, this, it's not a concept, it's an actual thing. Some of it's changing now with, um, you know, policies that are being passed, like, for example, um, under the Violence Against Women Act, some things have changed, but if a non-native perpetrator or person commits a crime on uh, reservation land, indigenous land, the tribal court system doesn't have jurisdiction over them. And so it gives this idea that tribal lands are just places that you can go to commit these crimes and you can get away with it because the tribal police don't have jurisdiction over you. So you can commit a crime on tribal land, leave tribal land, and by the time the crime gets investigated, you're already long gone. So yes, there is this um, complicated relationship between tribal criminal justice and federal criminal justice on who can investigate said crimes and bring people to justice for them. I think it's important here to note that even though it's only recently been gaining some more attention, this uh, epidemic of murder and missing Indigenous women, it's been since colonization this has been happening, and it's been a long time issue. Um, Before I let you go, thank you so much, Heather Briegel, for joining us. What is one thing that you'd really love listeners to understand around the work that you're doing or around some of the issues that you talk about? First and foremost, Indigenous people are still here. Uh, We might not be in the numbers that we once were prior to colonization starting, but we're still here. And we still have histories um, that are rich and vibrant and stories that we want to share and issues that we want to talk about. And, you know, you, you can educate yourself on our histories and be open to learning something new. And so I really just want people, when they see, you know, Uh, programs happening by Indigenous artists, speakers, scholars, what have you. Go to them. Learn. Because you're going to learn about a side of history that you didn't know before. And, you know, support Indigenous-led causes. Support Indigenous-owned businesses. Like We're getting ready to do holiday shopping. You know, support those businesses. Because when you do that, you're supporting culture and tradition and language continuously happening. And that's, I think, uh, more important than anything in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Heather Briegel. One of her recent talks was Decolonizing Thanksgiving, Learning the Truth and Crashing the Myth. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. You can also stream this program online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Media maker, storyteller, artist, Gasto Seraguate, Paulette Moore, came to Skidmore to present at MDocs back in April. She spoke with me ahead of her presentation about her work, language, reclaiming tools, and more.
What guanawaradu se wakwego gasto seraguate, yongyat, ganyenge haga, ni wakwen joda, danu wehiko ne aze, danu oswego tikidurum, wage nyato. So, hello everyone, my name is Gasto Seraguate Paulette Moore. I am Ganyenge Haga, which is Mohawk, and I'm enrolled at Six Nations of the Grand River, and I live at Six Nations and also part-time in New Mexico, and I am Turtle Clan. So it's nice to be here today. Thank you. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Could you introduce your work to us? Sure, I would love to. Yes, I'm a filmmaker and a podcaster and a community artist. And I'm really happy to be intersecting with what's going on at MDocs at Skidmore because they are just being so collaborative within community. And uh, they reached out to our Mohawk farm called Ganajoharege, um, which is in the Mohawk Valley. It's I'm happy to be in our original homelands. Again, it's great to be where our land and water is, the ones that we know best. And so I started my life as a mainstream media reporter and filmmaker in Washington, D.C., so that was what I really, really wanted to do. I wanted to, I don't know, I felt like there was going to be power in telling stories in that context, in the context of being in Washington and working for the networks and working for um, National Geographic and Discovery Channel. And I intersected with living and working in Washington um, with the rise of the cable networks. So that was a great time in the early 90s to be there and then really realized that my stories of my community were not being told. And in fact, when they were being told, uh, they we just were not represented well. And that's also the stories of women, the stories of Native people, the stories of people of color. If we were doing those stories, they were at the expense of our communities. And so um, set out on a journey to become an independent filmmaker, not knowing, you know, all of everything I did with the big networks was, was always funded. So it was a big journey, a spiritual journey, an economic journey, a philosophical journey, and a journey of language. I went into uh, Mohawk language and um, last May completed three years of immersion. So I've refound my language. I've started um, an organization called the Auntie's Dandelion, and we revitalize our communities through these stories of land, language, and relationships, and uh, spent a lot of time at indigenous response to environmental threats, first up in uh, northern Wisconsin with the Ojibwe, and then out at Standing Rock, which was the greatest gathering of indigenous people in modern day and uh, fighting a pipeline that did indeed go through uh, and is still being battled in federal court. But I consider that gathering in the heart of Turtle Island to this day, it affects me every day, that gathering and the family that we made there and the memory that we are all Indigenous people with similar values, so diverse, so beautiful, so strong, and protecting land and water, not just for our Indigenous communities, but everybody. So 
that's how I got to this point. And it's been a really long journey and one that I've just really appreciated and um, just really excited to intersect those stories with what's going on here in this area. That was a beautiful introduction. And I'm not even sure if we have so much enough time to unpack all of it. But you said you were interested in being a part of the mainstream media um, as a reporter seeking the power there, but it sounds like it was the opposite. What tools have you found to reclaim that power for you and your community? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, The tools to reclaim that power definitely is the language. I would say number one is remembering um, the Mohawk language because that part has rewired my brain. Mohawk language has hundreds of pronouns. So you gotta know who's talking to who, who, because that's about relationship. Me to you, two of us to them, you know, me to two of you, two of you to me. All of those are different pronouns and they speak to how important relationship is. The other part of the language is that we don't really have nouns. We're we're verb based. So we're action based and you can't get really abstract. You know, every time you say something, an elder is going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like if you ask an elder, how do you say this? They're like, wait, wait, wait who's talking to who and what's happening and why. You can't just blurt out like a noun. The noun has to be in motion. It has to be doing something. So the way that language has reintroduced me to our philosophy and ways of being in the world cannot be understated. And so going from language and just these beautiful philosophies we have, like the Thanksgiving address, that uh, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmer so beautifully articulates in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She's a Potawatomi person who just honors us. I just love that she was at our Mohawk farm, really understands that this is our original ceremony, actually. If we do no other ceremony, we are asked to to do the Ohandu Gariwadekwa, the Thanksgiving address, which is giving thanks to the water one by one by one, to the earth, to the water, to the people, to the bugs, making our way to the animals that give themselves to us, up into the trees, to the four winds, to the protectors, to the sun, the moon, and then the creator and the great intelligent energy that connects us. And so that is also is language, but that is philosophy. And we're just so grateful to have that. And it begins any interaction that we have. And we repeat this phrase and now our minds are one, you know, after we name the parts of the natural world that we're giving thanks to. And that's the other thing. It's like, not for them. I'm not giving thanks for them. I'm giving thanks to them. And that ceremony reminds us to be in relationship, what our important relationships are, what our main actions should be in life. I want to stick with language, and I think every language does navigate the world differently through that different vocabulary, so I'm really glad that you touched upon that. So how does your work, you're a podcaster, 
you mentioned your collective with the Auntie's Dandelion um, and also the lecturing. So how do you continue to use language and storytelling to reclaim the space? It has a lot to do with the content that we've talked about, right? This different way of thinking of the world not a predatory individualism. You know, I was just in this workshop where they were talking about strategy. You know, it wasn't an indigenous workshop. It, they were like, okay, strategy is either to attack or defend, attack or defend, you know? And I just was not down with that, you know, that dichotomy. Um, and in the lectures and in the podcast, we take the time to be in that relationship. And what I have found, especially in the podcast, is just that our people are so ready to talk. You know, people think of indigenous people as being stoic or silent, you know, and that's just not true. <laughs> um, our people are just have so much to share. We love to visit. And that's what we've taken on with the aunties dandelion. Somebody said that to us, one of our Mohawk farmers, Terry Lynn Brandt, when we went to interview her, she said what the aunties dandelion is, is doing is remembering how to visit with each other. And I had no idea she had been even listening to the podcast. I was like, whoa, you know, and that became such a frame for us to understand how this aesthetic is different from the news stories that I did back in Washington, where it's like rat a tat a tat a tat a tat. You know, there's a real particular way of speaking and uh, bullet pointing. And I don't feel like that serves us. It doesn't serve me. And the joy that I get from visiting with people within our Confederacy and beyond our Confederacy, people don't even really wind up till about 20 minutes in, you know? So I like sitting with people and finding our way together and then boom, they're off to the races, you know? So it's, it's a different way of approaching. And we've talked to some like podcasting collectives who are like, here's what you're doing wrong. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you have to get to the point. And then, so I respond to them. I work for geographic. I work for discovery and in, in, in news, my, my whole early life. I know what you're talking about and I know how to do that. And I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm doing right now. And if they can't understand that, or if that's not what their jam is, then fine, let's release this, you know, as a relationship. <laughs> um, because this is so important to me and I'm happy that this is happening at this point in my life, because when you're an auntie, you know, you carry a certain authority of experience and the authority of the language and the authority of the original instructions, you know, that we find in the natural world. And it's not an over authority. It's the authority of knowing and having a piece to carry and that our expanding kind of community and energy is delighted when we just put in the piece we have, when we just put in the piece that we're meant to carry. What would you like to leave our listeners with? I'd like to leave the listeners with these ideas and understandings that there are other ways to think and be in the world and that Indigenous people right now 
there's so many indigenous filmmakers, especially in, in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. It's just so amazing. And we do have something particular to say. We see reservation dogs, we see Rutherford Falls, you know, in more of the mainstream. And what we're carrying are stories, um, not that it's all answers, not that it's, you know, the be all end all, but just a different perspective and philosophy that's expansive and that opens us up. So just being in those conversations, stay in those conversations and seek the conversations with indigenous people and um, the nations that surround us that are here alive and vibrant and being in the world. Thank you so much for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. It's been a Thank pleasure you. to speak with you, Paulette Moore. How do you say your Haudenosaunee name? Gasto Seraguate. It means bright feather. What a pleasure to meet you. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you. <laughs> Find out more about Gasto Seraguate Paulette Moore at theauntiesdandelion.com. And not far from Troy, there is a community-supported land-back effort for Ganyankahaga, the Mohawk, taking place on a strawberry farm in Schoharie County. In August, there was a celebration and fundraiser. Ahead of the event, I spoke with Sarah Owanagu, Deer Stand-Up, who is spearheading the re-education effort that will be a part of this project. My name's Sandra Owanagu, Deer Stand-Up. It's a long name. <laughs> I'm a Ganyankehaga woman from Gahnawage, and that reservation is close to the island of Montreal. Um, I'm just an hour from Akwazasne and another Mohawk reserve named Ganasadage. So there's three different res Mohawk reservations um, close in the vicinity of one another. And the other ones are a bit further. We have seven Mohawk communities around the different provinces and states. I'm, I'm an educator. I've been an educator for 20 something years. Um, and I've been a student for a university student for a very long time. I've worked in chi early childhood education for many years. We teach all in the language. There's no English until a certain grade because um, we we've run out of speakers and teachers to to you know fulfill those uh that obligation to have our immersion all the way up to grade six students but now we only have up to grade four because we lack the fluent speakers in education so welcome to hudson mohawk magazine so sandra this weekend on august 12th to 14th is the waterfall community celebration and this is a way to celebrate the funding effort for the land back that is taking place on a strawberry farm over in Schoharie County, where the Ganankahaga, the Mohawk people, have ancestral ties. How does it feel when you are on this land? The first time I've, I've gone there, I felt the connection right away. Um, and to be honest, even in the past, when I've gone to Albany, New York, as a child, there's always been this, this some kind of connection that I've always felt, it feels very comfortable. And as an adult, you know, I, I noticed years ago that when I would go through Albany, 
there's always this feeling that you feel because you know that there's a connection there from our ancestors. So there's always been this feeling of some type of connection, but I wasn't very clear on what that connection was until I went in Troy and we stood there on the Hudson and just to be there around the river and you know, um, I kind of, there's really not many words to explain it, but it's a feeling that you feel when you're there. It's like a very comfortable feeling and a welcoming feeling, and you feel it right through your body. And that that's how I feel when I'm there. And, you know, going to the Skohari Valley, which is, which is just, you know, over the, over the water on the other side of the, of the river, it's it's the same, you know, the, the energy there is even seems that it's more powerful than on the Hudson. For me, that that connection, that feeling when I when I've gone there to to the water waterfall in Skohari, it, it's it's absolutely amazing the feeling that you get. Just driving down the 88. When coming into the valley, you feel it there. It, it's not, it doesn't have to be right at the waterfall. The energy of my ancestors are there. And when I'm, oh, it, it's just so powerful, the feeling that I get. And everybody that I've spoken to are people, when they drive up there, they have the same, same feelings that energy of that power of our ancestors. It's such a welcoming feeling. There's no other words to explain it because it's a feeling that you feel when you, when you come into contact, you know, in connection with the energy around the Skohari Valley. Yeah. So the energy is obviously there and what you are working on. And I believe you're leading is the cultural work after the purchase of this land which is a different kind of relationship. How are you planning to recreate the cultural relationship? Well, first of all, like as an educator, we're looking to we're looking to bring back education through education. But of course, we're not looking to follow the square box of what education really, you know, um, when if when you define it. What we're looking at is to bring our own cultural teachings back through the land working on the land, being on the land, that reciprocal um, reciprocity, that's, that's what it is. You give and the land gives back to you. You give love, you give care, you give, you know, you treat the land with respect. You get back what the land is going to give you, you know, and for that, it's a berry farm. That, that portion of the land is a berry farm. So, that whole abundance of those berries that when it gives back to the people, you know, that is a whole teaching in itself. And another teaching, a very important teaching is about the strawberries in our culture. In our culture, that is the first fruit that comes out of the ground. And that is one of the first fruit that we give thanks for when before the summer. So this is a, the, the whole land back is in conjunction with the teaching to bring our original teachings back to our children and in the language, because the language holds key understandings to the environmental connection that we have with the land. You know, the English translations 
are very hard to translate our language, but we make do, you know, but when you speak the language, there's a feeling in the language that you totally understand it because our language is very descriptive. So bringing back the teachings with through the language, through the land, you know, for, for me as an educator, the, you know, uh, working in, in universities, the, 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 the hot topic word over the last, say, maybe 10 years has grown is the word decolonization. So this whole project is a whole process of decolonization because a lot of our people are colonized and this is the reason why our culture has been fading away quicker than we know. So decolonization is just living through our culture, bringing back that land, bringing back the connection and that reciprocal way of living with the land. That's the whole connection about being an indigenous person. So bringing those teachings back is one of the, the main goals with this land back effort. And you mentioned the white box of education, the fact that you're an educator. It sounds like this is also a way for your community to have agency over its own re-education. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Because as, a, as an educator working for different organizations over the last 20 some years, it's mainly the government who pushes their agenda and mainly the government who pushes uh, the type of education that's going to be you know, shown to the to the children. And from my my original teachings and my perspective, that is not how children learn, because all children learn differently. <laughs> you know, the goals that we're trying to reach with this, the gathering the funding and donations and trying to raise money for these efforts to bring back Ganyangihaga uh, people to the valley, you know, that's, that's the whole part of it. Uh, education part is a very key point because I'm an educator and have many years of experience, um, I'm kind of maybe spearheading it, you want to say. I don't, I'm not in charge. I don't take any responsibility of being the head of anything. That's not how we operate. We, we collaborate and, and we work together as women to, uh, you know, decide and, and talk about all of our ideas. Thank you so much for joining us for... Listeners who are interested in learning more, waterfallunityalliance.org has information on this celebration that's taking place on this weekend. Um, what else would you like to leave our listeners with, Sandra? Well, I would like to say nyawa goa. That means thank you very much in my language. And I'm offering my acknowledgement and respect to everyone. And if you're going to come to the event, uh, yeah, please come and enjoy the music. And we're going to have a lot of different music. Our own traditional music uh, will be performing, you know, just, just to like to show our, our music and show some of the dances we have and just to share our culture in different ways. Before the celebration and fundraiser for the Land Back effort, I also spoke with organizer Bethany Yarrow of Waterfall Unity Alliance. You can hear that interview at mediasanctuary.org. At the event, I spoke with Roberto Mucaro Borrero. 
human rights advocate, consultant, cultural advisor, writer, artist, and musician. Uh, my name is Roberto Mucaro Aguebana Borrero. I'm an indigenous Taino. Uh, my family line comes from the island of Boriquen, uh, which today uh, people know as Puerto Rico. Could you describe where we are? Right now we're in the Schoharie Valley uh, at a gathering, uh, bringing together uh, different indigenous peoples and celebrating a return of the Mohawk indigenous peoples uh, to this area. And uh, they have uh, construction of a longhouse, a traditional uh, structure for them. And they are hoping to purchase some additional land in the area to uh, just set more economic and cultural activities for their people. And what is your relationship to this particular project or the general concept of returning indigenous land back to indigenous hands? Well, as an indigenous person, uh, the land back movement is something that uh, we all work on <laughs> wherever in whatever capacity. Uh, myself, I've been uh, probably involved in uh, standard setting work, uh, meaning work around policy either at the local, national, or international level. Uh, for many years, I participated in the negotiations uh, for the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And uh, after the General Assembly uh, approved that declaration in 2007, uh, a good part of my work has been to try to help uh, not only my own community, but other communities of indigenous peoples uh, work to implement that declaration. And, and part of that implementation is, is connected to the land back struggle. So uh, sometimes I find uh, uh, advising, uh, strategic advising for different communities uh, that helps them link the international standards uh, to local level work and uh, reminding uh, local officials about their obligations, uh, whether they understand them or not, with the international standards that have been set. And uh, that, that speaks to work around self-determination. Uh, obviously, uh, indigenous peoples being able to uh, control their own narratives, uh, whether that's uh, their social, cultural, or economic narratives, and what they want uh, to see for their people, not only now, but for their future generations. What kind of responses are you getting from non-Indigenous people who are in government? And what would you like to see them implement in their practices? Well, I, th I think uh, there's not a one-size-fits-all in this work. Uh, some folks are, are more receptive uh, to change and some are not. Uh, trying to reconcile what people feel is uh, national and local level policy to international is sometimes challenging. But uh, when we bring it down to the idea of human rights, again, uh, some people can understand that and uh, understand the concept of human rights for all. Uh, some people are a little different and maybe more keen to look at these things through the, through the lens of civil rights. It's a little bit different uh, with indigenous peoples especially for communities like the Mohawk or, or, or others that have a strong governance system. So when you talk about civil rights, you're really talking about people who are following and under the jurisdiction of the civil government. But when you talk about indigenous peoples, they also have governments. 
right? We also have governments. So it becomes a human rights issue. And how do these two different governments coexist, uh, even though the Mohawk and other indigenous peoples currently find themselves surrounded by a whole nother government system and nation. And that's been the, the real challenge since the arrival of colonists and, and all the changes that have ensued over the, the past 500 years or more. And so, um, as I said, some folks are, are uh, a bit more open to that change. And I think what I would like to see is more inclusion Right, more discussion uh, when you're talking about there's there's a concept in human rights. It's 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 a basic human right that I think a lot of people don't don't understand, which is the uh, concept and, and the standard of, of free, prior, and informed consent, meaning that you know if something's going to happen to us, <laughs> we should have <laughs> we should be informed about it. We should be able to give consent or not, and uh, you know that speaks to development issues oftentimes that's the real challenge for indigenous peoples and where you have lands lands that indigenous peoples understand that are part of their traditional territories but then you have these other governments outside governments coming in and saying well we want to develop this land for this project or, or what have you and then there's that's where a clash begins and and you you hear about this everywhere from standing rock to oka uh, and, and so on it's always this this kind of incursion of land i mean because the lands that we have are are the ones that we have left right and now it's trying to expand on that we're not trying to lose the land that that we have left because this is what we have for our future generations and so i think that you know getting people uh, to the table right is important having them as part and and really for folks in local government to start thinking when they think about communities even if uh, indigenous communities are not so visible because in the Northeast, I think that it's a little different from when you go out West, where the communities are much more visible. They have a much more, have much more impact in the daily lives of everyone. Here, communities are more, more far, few and farther between. And so it's not a daily thing, unless you go to like Syracuse and, and where, the, where the communities are a bit stronger. But let's say around this particular area, it's very different. So it takes a, a, a bit of understanding and so that you know, people get nervous very easily and, and think that their their rights are being taken away when they don't understand that the reason why they're even here is because other people's rights have been taken away. And so I think once you start really letting people know what this is about, it's not about kicking them off their land, but also to be equitable and to to make sure that original peoples who may have lost these lands from unscrupulous dealings uh, really have that that restitution and are able to also provide for their families and for their generations uh, not only in the present but again into the future is the land back effort for the berry farm a way to invite people to dispel some of those scary ideas like you mentioned that people might have absolutely I'm not uh, directly involved with the project. I'm here to support the effort to uh, obtain that farm. Uh, I think that it's really important because no matter what, people need economic assistance, right? They're, they need to find ways uh, to improve uh, conditions and continue to develop it in sustainable ways. And, and I think that that initiative really speaks to that. And once people understand really what they're doing it won't be such a scary idea to them once they can get here 
understand, listen to the spokespeople uh, who are in charge of this initiative, the Mohawk people, and, and once they hear their story and understand, you know, how uh, what this valley used to be for them and what it can continue to be for them, I think that more people will support the idea than uh, be against it. But again, it's it's the idea that that story has to get out and has to, people have to, it has to be humanized, right? Because oftentimes, indigenous peoples are not humanized in, in the minds of the greater public, right? We have a, lo a lot of years of negative publicity. We have uh, Hollywood stereotypes and, and stories of, and, and words like savage and, and primitive and radical and, and everything else that comes along with that. So understanding that, you know, here's an opportunity for um, restitution, for economic development that would not only benefit the Mohawks, but it would benefit the region and the area as well. So I just think that um, their story needs to get out. Uh, and once people really understand it, they won't be so afraid and they will continue to support it. Thank you so much, Roberto, for coming on to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. What else would you like to let our listeners know? First of all, thank you so much for, for inviting me to speak with you. I think that people just should just learn more, you know, learn from shows like this and, and, and take that time. You know, indigenous peoples are not always in the mainstream, uh, so you have to sometimes look for those resources. But I think that you'll find it valuable and you'll expand your understanding uh, and history of the region that you're in if you really look into the story of indigenous peoples and see and support where you can. You know, there's all kinds of ways to support, not just monetarily. People can go and volunteer, help help out, help building. Uh, there's there's a there's a longhouse that's happening here that, you know, people could maybe uh, you know help to get some resources for it and, and and really make this project come to the fruition, and really see something beautiful happening here. It's already happening, but uh, I think it could just grow. That was Roberto Mucaro Borrero speaking with me at the Waterfall Unity Alliance event, where there is a land-back movement for the Kahaga in Schoharie Valley. You can learn more at waterfallunityalliance.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilaheki. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Thanks for listening. Until next time.